This committee will come to order. Let me welcome all of you to the seventh hearing for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 115th Congress. This hearing comes at a historic moment for our policy toward North Korea. A week from today, in Singapore, President Trump will meet Kim Jong-un, the first summit between a sitting United States president and a North Korean dictator. The stakes could not be higher for this meeting and its outcomes because there is no greater diplomatic offering that the United States can offer to resolve this crisis than the President of the United States. Over the last three decades, North Korea has built the world's largest illicit arsenal of mass destruction, including nuclear, ballistic missile, biological, chemical, and radiological weapons programs. According to intelligence assessments, North Korea is getting dangerously close to a viable intercontinental ballistic missile capability that can threaten the United States mainland. North Korea remains the world's most brutal violator of human rights, with up to 200,000 men, women, and children in gulag-style detention camps. A landmark 2014 United Nations Human Rights Report said that the regime is conducting genocide against its own people. Despite the grave threat the regime has posed, when I came to the Senate in 2015, few were focused on the North Korea problem set, which led me to refer to Kim Jong-un as the forgotten maniac. The United States policy at the time, called strategic patience, was clearly failing to deter the regime. It was Congress that took the lead and recognized that without an immediate change in U.S. policy and a robust global pressure campaign, we could never gain the necessary leverage to force the regime to change course and to denuclearize. On February 10, 2016, the United States Senate passed my North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act, or NICSP, by a vote of 96 to 0. President Trump signed it into law eight days later. The bill was the first, first standalone legislation to mandate sanctions against North Korea and its enablers for proliferation, human rights, and cybersecurity violations. NICSP has become the backbone of the current maximum pressure policy toward the regime. According to the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, the North Korea Sanctions and Policy Enhancement Act, which came into effect February 18, 2016, marked a turning point in U.S. sanctions. The law spurred the Obama administration to issue new designations while creating the framework for the Trump administration's maximum policy, maximum pressure policy. Since the passage of NICSP, U.S. sanctions against North Korea have increased by 276%, or almost threefold. Even with this increase, North Korea moved from the eighth most sanctioned nation by the United States to being the fourth most sanctioned nation today. Remarkably, the FDD also found that in the entire eight years of the Obama administration, there were 154 sanctions designations against North Korea. In the first 16 months of the Trump administration, there have already been 156 such designations. The Trump administration has also conducted a successful international diplomatic isolation campaign against North Korea, resulting in over 20 nations downgrading or ending commercial and diplomatic ties with the regime. For example, the Philippines was once North Korea's third largest trading partner with nearly 100 million in bilateral trade. In September of 2017, Manila ended all trade with Pyongyang, a resounding success for U.S. diplomacy. But now that we have painstakingly built the sanctions leverage and brought Pyongyang to the negotiating table, it would be misguided to let up on the pressure valve. In fact, we should continue to build our diplomatic leverage through additional sanctions, including Senator Markey and I 
our bipartisan legislation called the LEAD Act, which mandates a global trade embargo against the regime. United States law with regard to North Korea, established through Section 402 of the NICSPI, is clear. There can be no sanctions relief for North Korea unless the regime makes significant progress toward completely, verifiably, and irreversibly dismantling all of its nuclear, chemical, biological, and radiological weapons programs, including all programs for the development of systems designed in whole or in part for the delivery of such weapons. Any negotiations with the North Korea must ultimately meet the high bar of Section 402. So far, although it has suspended missile tests, North Korea has not taken any concrete or verifiable steps toward denuclearization. So it is my hope that during the summit it will be made clear to the regime that the only goal of our negotiations is denuclearization, a message that President Trump, Secretary Pompeo, and Secretary Mattis have all publicly reiterated. Now I'll turn it over to our ranking member, Senator Markey, for his opening comments and thank him for being a great partner uh, as we have worked together to solve uh, this great challenge. Senator Markey. Now, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. And thank you for convening this critical uh, hearing. And uh, uh, welcome back to, uh, to Washington from Singapore. I know you went to the Shangri-La Dialogue. I'm sorry that I could not join you there. Uh, but it's great to be sitting next to you again, addressing this key foreign policy uh, challenge that we face in Asia. Your leadership here in the Senate and on the committee is invaluable, and I am grateful for your partnership and your friendship. I also want to thank our fantastic witnesses for being here as well. You are two of the top North Korea experts in the country, and we are appreciative of your many years of service on behalf of the American people. I also want to thank all of our colleagues uh, who have been working on this issue as well. Our hearing could not be more important, as Congress's involvement will be crucial uh, in any successful diplomatic effort with North Korea. And the strong uh, interest which Congress shows is testament to that fact. This committee should help shape the parameters of our North Korea policy and set the stage for the upcoming summit meeting. While the White House will make some decisions behind closed doors, the implications of those decisions necessitate a public debate. We also must ensure that these policy efforts are appropriately resourced and overseen. It's no secret that I do not agree with President Trump on everything, but I welcome his turn towards diplomacy, even if his methods are unorthodox. A combination of direct engagement backed by pressure is the only solution to the North Korean threat to the United States, our allies, and to the broader region. And I have long advocated for this approach, including through previous hearings of this subcommittee. And we are here today to help pave the way for greater cooperation between Congress and the White House, both before and after the upcoming summit. Because for a meaningful, lasting agreement, the executive and legislative branches must both sing from the same sheet of music. Without that collaboration, we will not successfully reduce the threats. And the threats are significant. Unlike with other countries, North Korea already possesses 
thermonuclear warheads and the ballistic missiles to deliver them. It has shorter range missiles that cast a dark shadow over our allies, South Korea and Japan. Pyongyang possesses some of the foulest toxins on the planet, and it brutally represses, imprisons, tortures, and kills its own citizens. So we must address these myriad threats, and there is serious debate about how best to do it. But one thing remains crystal clear. There is no military solution to this problem. Direct diplomacy, backed by economic pressure, is the only approach that will successfully resolve the North Korea crisis. But while North Korea is coming to the table, we have not yet compelled it to accept our definition of denuclearization, one where the Kim regime relinquishes its nuclear weapons and it means and its means to produce more. It appears that Kim Jong-un, having stockpiled a wide range of illicit and dangerous weapons, believes that he is negotiating from a position of strength rather than from a position of weakness. And while the Trump administration said that it has imposed maximum pressure, the truth is we haven't yet reached that level. North Korea must understand that even if China eases the pressure, we in Congress are ready to step in to tighten the screws. Because without sufficient pressure, we can expect and must prepare for the old Kim family playbook. History shows us that North Korea tries to, one, front-end, uh, uh, front-load rewards and delay concessions as it did during the Clinton administration negotiations. Two, use sleight of hand to make ir irrelevant actions seem meaningful, such as when it imploded the Yongbyon cooling tower during the Bush years. And three, exploit ambiguity, as North Korea did during the Obama administration when it claimed ballistic missile test was a peaceful space launch. We want reconciliation, not repetition because North Korea's negotiating history is filled with obfuscation, false concessions, and broken promises, we must approach these discussions with eyes wide open. I believe that we can all agree that ultimately, we need a plan that stops North Korea's plutonium production and uranium enrichment, that suspends and then eliminates its ballistic missile program, that permanently dismantles and removes all of its nuclear chemical and biological weapons, and that implements a compliance inspection program with a strong verification regime. Suspend, eliminate, dismantle, remove, and verify every step of the way. Although there are a few disagreements uh, over what a deal should look like, the trick is figuring out how to get there to successfully navigate the hazards. Number one, do not sell out our allies. We must not allow North Korea to believe that the alliance framework, which has served as the foundation of regional peace and security, is anything other than unshakable. Two, do not prematurely release the pressure valve. China, North Korea's chief enabler, is becoming a problem in this regard. There are already reports that China is easing pressure on its neighbor. North Korea goods already are easier to find in China despite being banned by United Nations Security Council resolutions. If China wants to be taken seriously as a responsible global power, it cannot shirk its duties 
to enforce sanctions on serial violators like North Korea. And if the talks don't go well or if North Korea backslides at any point, we would want China to consider cutting off all of its crude oil exports to the North Korean regime. Without measures like this, and without a clear understanding of our previous diplomatic efforts with North Korea, we could fail. And we owe it to our fellow Americans to successfully reduce the threats that we face. I look forward to exploring these issues today, and I want to thank our witnesses and the countless other national security professionals working so diligently to address these challenges. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. And uh, the eyes of the world are on Singapore. Uh, where the world looks at a historic opportunity for peace with many questions unanswered and no one is better situated to answer those better suited to answer those questions than the two witnesses before us today. I'm going to introduce both witnesses and then turn it over to uh, you for uh, your testimony and then we'll take questions. Our first witness is Dr. Victor Cha who serves as senior advisor and Korea chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. From 2004 to 2007, Dr. Cha served as Director for Asian Affairs at the National Security Council, where he was responsible primarily for Japan, the Korean Peninsula, Australia, New Zealand, and Pacific Island Nation Affairs. He was also the Deputy Head of the Delegation for the United States at the Six-Party Talks in Beijing and received two outstanding service commendations during his tenure at the National Security Council. I will note that Dr. Cha testified at this subcommittee in October 2015 when few were paying attention to North Korea, no one was in attendance at the uh, committee hearing, and the grave challenge uh, that the regime posed to the United States and our allies was just being uh, fully understood. Welcome back, Dr. Cha, and thank you for your service. Our second witness today is Ambassador Joseph Yoon, who currently serves as a senior advisor for the Asia program at the U.S. Institute of Peace. Ambassador Yoon has a distinguished 33-year career at the Department of State before his recent retirement in February of this year. In his last assignment, he served as Special Envoy on North Korea from 2016 to 2018, leading the department's efforts with regard to North Korea policy and coordination. From 2013 to 2016, he served as U.S. Ambassador to Malaysia, and prior to that, he served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for East Asia, East Asian and Pacific Affairs. Welcome, Ambassador Yoon. Thank you for your service, uh, and we will begin with your testimony. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Markey, and members of the subcommittee. Thank you for the opportunity to testify this morning on next steps on U.S. policy toward North Korea. Mr. Chairman, with your permission, I will submit a longer written testimony for the record. Uh, I would like to make five points on where we are, where I believe where we are, where we might want to go in regard to the threat posed by the North Korean nuclear weapons. First, I believe we are in a materially different place than where we were a year ago or even six months ago. Uh, during that time, North Koreans have stopped their provocative missile and nuclear tests. The United States has agreed to hold the first ever summit uh, with the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, and as a result, tensions are materially down. Second, even compared with a month ago, there has been a noticeable change in what the U.S. administration is looking for in the upcoming summit meetings. Keywords from the administration now seems to be process and progress. A big change 
from the all-in-one or Big Bang denuclearization championed by senior administration officials only of a few weeks ago. Third, related to that, however, is the concern now on whether the administration is now placing the bar too low on denuclearization. True, while it is a good development that the administration is more realistic, we should not accept North Korea as a nuclear weapons state. Complete denuclearization, which means dismantlement, removal of all fissile material, and production capacity must be the goal. My fourth point is that in order to get there, there must be concrete steps committed by North Korea in the upcoming Singapore meeting. There are some easy, immediate deliverables that should not be difficult for North Korea. These would include memorializing North Korea's current self-imposed moratorium on nuclear and ballistic missile testing and opening the Yongbyon nuclear facilities for IAEA inspection and monitoring. A much more difficult, but nevertheless, a vital initial step is to provide a true declaration and accounting of all North Korean nuclear sites and fissile material. <clears throat> Pyongyang, <coughs> Pyongyang has adamantly resisted giving such an accounting in the past. And this is a, a key reason for the collapse of the two previous agreements, the agreed framework and the six-party talks. These first stage actions accompanied by an agreement on full verification will test the seriousness of Kim Jong-un's claim that he is seeking a different type of relationship with the United States and the international community. Beyond the immediate steps, the negotiations must produce a clear timeline for the ultimate goal, the disablement and dismantlement of all, no of all nuclear and North Korean ICBM facilities. If Kim does agree to a swift timeline, uh, I believe the skeptics in Washington, Seoul, and T Tokyo will be, become more quiet, although they will continue to assert rightly that implementation is everything. My fifth and last point is what Kim Jong-un gets in return. Pyongyang has developed nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles to ensure regime survival. To reach a clear outcome on denuclearization, there should be a corresponding clarity on security assurances. Diplomatically, both the DPRK and US should show their serious commitment to normalizing relations by agreeing to an end of war statement and opening of liaison offices <coughs> in Washington and Pyongyang. Declaring that the United States does not have hostile intent and that United States will begin normalization and peace treaty negotiations is needed as security assurances. As an addendum, I would like to add that better relations with North Korea, even security guarantees for North Korea, such as no first strike, cannot come at the expense of degrading our alliances in the region, especially the US ROK and, and US-Japan alliances. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. 
Thank you, Ambassador Yoon. And for those of you wondering, the uh, smell in here was not an electrical fire. They were welding upstairs, so uh, that was the smell. It's stopped now, so uh, we're okay. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Cha. Thank you. Um, <coughs> Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Markey, and distinguished members of the subcommittee, it's a distinct honor to appear before this subcommittee to discuss the challenges of U.S. policy to North Korea. The impending summit meeting between President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un on June 12th in Singapore potentially will take us to a historic moment in U.S. policy on the Korean Peninsula. If the events leading up to June 12th are any indication, only the President himself will determine what deal can be made or whether no deal should be made with Kim Jong-un. But a summit, without a, a summit is not a strategy, and a summit without a strategy is dangerous. The United States needs to have clear focus on our objectives in this negotiation and must stay closely aligned with Congress and with our allies in achieving these objectives. In this regard, I enumerate some principles that might be useful as we think about entering this period of summit diplomacy. First, we must maintain the goal of complete denuclearization of North Korea. I don't think anybody disagrees about that. Uh, easing up on this goal might facilitate short-term negotiations, but would have damaging effects regionally and globally. In this regard, it will be important to see a definitive denuclearization statement from the North Korean leader, which commits to abandoning all nuclear weapons and existing nuclear programs, um, or returns to the commitments in the 1992 joint declaration between the two Koreas, in which they agreed neither to harbor, develop, manufacture nuclear weapons, nuclear bomb precursors, enrichment facilities, and reprocessing capabilities. Second, progress in negotiations must not come at the cost of U.S. security in the short or long term. It will be important to maintain vigilant activities to, to prevent horizontal proliferation, including maximum pressure sanctions on those individuals and entities that continue to facilitate trade or business that finances these programs. Third we, must pursue, uh, third, we must pursue policies towards North Korea that facilitate broader U.S. strategic objectives in Asia. In practical terms, this means this, we're talking about measures we take in our North Korea policy that should strengthen, not weaken, our alliances with South Korea and Japan. Fourth, we must seek a missile drawdown that reinforces extended deterrence. Any missile deal must account for the full range of North Korea's ballistic missiles, both short-range and long-range, in ways that reinforce our extended deterrence commitments to our allies and do not delink from Japan and South Korea. Fifth, we, don't, we can't afford to give away too much too early. One of President Trump's rules in business is never to want the negotiation more than your counterpart. Given the heightened expectations that have been heaped on the summit, it will be important for the president not to violate his own cardinal rules and put too many concessions on the table. For example, the disposition of U.S. troops in South Korea in return for vague commitments to denuclearization. Concessions must be calibrated to concrete actions by North Korea related to denuclearization or conventional force reductions, not just to vague promises. Sixth, It'll be important for Congress to insist on better coordination with relevant parties as the White House moves forward in these negotiations. This includes consulting with this body given its role in funding or ratifying any agreement, ensuring the South Koreans coordinate their inter-Korean initiatives with the pace of U.S.-North Korea talks, protecting Japan's alliance equities, 
in encouraging China and Russia to not to work at cross purposes with the US effort. The process could also be de derailed by clumsy communication. Rather than loud tweets, quiet diplomacy and consultations are necessary. Finally, seventh, we must require North Korea to address human rights abuses. As a recent report by the George W. Bush Institute notes, a critical element of any comprehensive political settlement with North Korea must include their agreement to end their regime's systematic violation of human rights. Finally, critics may be dissatisfied with the unconventional manner of the president's policy towards North Korea. Nevertheless, with the summit only days away, we must all step back from the politics of the policy and ensure that the outcome of these meetings achieves the objective of making the U.S. more and not less secure. High-stakes summit negotiations will necessarily involve tactics and guile, but grounding these negotiations in a core set of strategic principles is critical to American interests. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Cha. Again, thank you, uh, Ambassador Yoon. And we'll begin with, with questions. Uh, you have both stated that denuclearization must be the goal objective of this summit. I believe uh, the complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization must be the goal, the objective of this summit. It's the law of the United States that complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization uh, is our policy toward North Korea. Uh, Dr. Cha, quickly, Ambassador Yoon, quickly again, if you could just in a sentence or two define for the committee what denuclearization is. It's not, you know it when you see it. What is denuclearization, Dr. Cha? So it starts, as Ambassador Yoon said, with a, a, f a complete and fully verifiable declaration of all uh, weapons or precursors and facilities, including the over 300 buildings at Yongbyon, but everywhere else around the country. Uh, and then following that, the, um, uh, the, ver the verifiable monitoring of a long-term freeze on all the activities that take place, and then the eventual disablement <coughs> and dismantlement and removal of all facilities and, their, and uh, weapons and their precursors. Um, I, I don't think there's, a, there's a def another definition out there uh, that makes more sense than that, and I think is one that is internationally accepted. Thank you, Ambassador Yoon. with that. I don't think I can improve on that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Yoon. And, and both of you have stated that our pressure must continue on North Korea. Uh, Dr. Cha, uh, we should continue our maximum pressure and fully enforcing our sanctions on North Korea. Is that correct? Yes, that, I agree with that statement. Absolutely. Am Ambassador Yoon? Practically, it is not possible to continue maximum pressure. I mean, when you're talking with your adversary, are you going to continue maximum pressure? I mean, that's a rhetorical question, but you cannot do it. I don't think you can have serious engagement as well as maximum pressure. Uh, let me follow up with that. If there's not maximum pressure, though, uh, because there are ongoing negotiations, that must mean there is some objective that has been agreed to, some principle upon which they have said, in order for us to reach this agreement or a lessening of pressure, that's what they would do. Uh, but it must be concrete, is that correct? Well, for example, right now, as we speak right now, the North Koreans have stopped testing. They've stopped testing nuclear devices. They've stopped testing uh, missiles. And they have, well, at least apparently, done something to the Punggye testing facility. Well, I think when your adversary takes a step, it is also up to you to take a step too. 
So it doesn't have to be written, you know, it can be understanding, it can be back-channel communication, but I think we need to acknowledge when your adversary has taken a step. Thank you. Uh, let me ask you this. Do you think uh, the sanctions have already uh, lessened in some degree? Dr. Shaw. Yeah, I, I'm concerned. I mean, the reports are clearly that the Chinese have lessened pressure. There are reports that North Korean ships are showing up in Chinese uh, harbors now. Um, we're trying to collect satellite imagery right now, commercial imagery of the border re region to measure what's the activity on the customs area in both uh, uh, on, on the North Korean side and the Chinese side. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, I think the South Koreans are pre-positioning um, to get ready to provide humanitarian assistance to the North. So I think uh, according to what Joe said, I mean, I think there are things that are already starting to be put in motion that are coming, that are being presented as rewards to North Korea for the steps they've already taken. Um, I think our sanctions are, I mean, as you said, they're US law and they're explicitly linked to uh, nuclear proliferation and nuclear activity. So, um, um, it's, it, they're not, I don't think they're political instruments. Uh, I think they're things that have been put there because of North Korean proliferation activity and therefore it requires concrete action by the North for there to be any change in the sanctions regime that currently exists. Do you believe that Kim Jong-un is committed to denuclearization as you have described it? Um, no, in my 30 years of studying this issue and the limited time I've had in government working on this issue, I am not convinced yet that they are, he is fully ready to give up his weapons. I think, as you said, or as Joe said in his testimony, they prefer to front load the rewards and push off denuclearization for as long as they possibly can. And even then, I think when they talk about denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, they don't use that phrase in the same way that uh, um, an untrained ear might hear it. I mean, they use it to mean sometime in the future they believe that the Korean Peninsula should be free of weapons when there is no longer any threat in the world to North Korea. Um, and, 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 you know, the type of regime that this is, they will always feel insecure, regardless of whether there is the United States on their border or the United States not on their border. Ambassador Yoon, as, uh, as we agreed to the sort of definition, as you agreed with uh, Dr. Cha on the definition of complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization, do you believe Kim Jong-un is committed uh, to that level of CVID? I would say we don't know. Uh, Kim Jong-un is 34 years old. I think he's looking to live another 40 years or more. <coughs> and he has experience living overseas. Uh, all, I mean, I agree completely with Victor that all signs are in history, they have not shown any signs that they want to denuclearize. But however, it is a hypothesis worth testing mm -hmm. that we push to the limit whether so that we can determine how serious it is. I don't think he himself, you know, or the North Korean elites know how serious he is, but we need to point him to the direction where, so that he becomes serious. I completely agree with uh, Senator Markey. War is not an option. War is not an option. And so we should be trying to point to him so that we don't go towards that direction. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thanks, Ambassador Yoon. And, and uh, before I turn to Senator Markey, I think it's very important that a, a couple points remain uh, in focus on this. Number one, uh, that full commitment to denuclearization. Uh, in Section 402 of the North Korea Sanctions Policy Enhancement Act, we make it very clear the conditions with which the president can certify 
uh, we've achieved that goal in order to lift sanctions under U.S. law and the NICSB um, legislation. Uh, number two, uh, the framework with which we pursue these actions uh, with Korea and Japan, we must not sacrifice uh, the alliance between Korea and the United States or imperil that, endanger that whatsoever, but also making sure that the regional interests of Japan are taken into account as it relates to uh, certain of the strategic postures that North Korea could possess. Uh, number three, uh, our, our strategic deployment of U.S. troops uh, on the Korean Peninsula, critically important, not just for uh, the issue of peace on the peninsula, uh, but this is a very important issue that should not be contingent or connected or related to North Korea, South Korea, U.S. talks on nuclearization. They are completely separate and should not, under any circumstances, be used as a negotiating chip or tool in these discussions. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me move to the key issue of timing in terms of what, in your opinion, the sequence should be of concessions that are made by North Korea, uh, their verifiability, and then the concessions which are given by the United States. Could you each lay out, if you could, how you believe that timing should unfold. Um, <clears throat> so I think as Ambassador Yin said in his statement, the, the baseline condition as we enter this is that there has to be a suspension of everything that the North Koreans are doing. I don't see that as a phase, that's just a baseline, it should be there all the time. To me, the most important thing that would give one a sense that there is, um, a true, at least the beginning of what looks like a true strategic decision to um, to move in the direction that we want them to is this declaration. I mean, it is the place that we have been stopped before with North Korea in the last agreement during the six-party talks. We got to the point of the declaration where North Korea would not provide a true declaration. And then following that complete declaration, that, that all has to be verified. So the next step would be, <coughs> international inspectors going in to verify the quantity, the location of all of these things and prepare the disablement process. Those are, I think, the key steps, sequential steps for um, the, the um, denuclearization part. And, and the provision of assistance, whether it's through the humanitarian carve-out under the current UN sanctions regime, or the actual uh, relaxation of some of the 10 UN Security Council resolutions or our own, our own sanctions of North Korea would have to be calibrated to concrete steps in terms of, uh, I think, the, the process of verifying quantity and location and then the disablement process. Um, uh, to me, that, that seems like the key, the, the sort of key sequential steps. And when are we providing along that sequence the benefits of their cooperation. I think I think we would have to, Senator, I think we would have to start seeing some actions on the part of the United States when we are actually at the verification at the verification of the do, you, do you agree with that, uh, yeah. Mr. Young? Yes, sir. I think again the crucial step is the first step, declaration. Without knowing what they have, how are you going to negotiate with them? And this is where we failed in the past. So coming out of Singapore, uh, for me, the litmus test of whether we've gotten anywhere is to, to, to know whether they have a declaration or not. On, uh, 
on, on, on what we do in return, that's obviously a tougher topic. You know, what do you give in return? I think everyone agrees on what, what we get from them. And then, you know, being in the administration, it was always very uncomfortable to discuss what we give in return because you don't want to start saying what you're going to give before you start negotiation. Obviously, they're looking for security assurances and we need to address that need. And I think you can match the steps and this is why I think the president has moved from his previous position of all-in-one to face, you know, step-by-step -step approach. And you can start beginning with end of war declaration. Uh, what does it mean practically to have an end of war declaration? To me, it means that you are essentially taking uh, military option off the table. You know, so I think that is one assurance that you can give them, and you can start discussing peace treaty negotiation to finally end. Uh, the ceasefire that ended the Korean War. And then, as you mentioned, you know, uh, as the chairman mentioned, how do you match disablement, dismantlement with economic sanctions? And that's a crucial step that they'll be looking for. You know, it's this tough-to-know timeline. I think uh, uh, Sig Hecker, who is a real expert, visited North Korea many times in our Los Alamo lab, said, even with voluntary uh, denuclearization, it could take 10 years to, to do all that. Uh, you know, so it's gonna take a while. 10 years, so in, in addition to nuclear, there are also missile issues, chemical issues, human rights issues, cyber hacking issues. So the question that I would have for both of you is, uh, should we handle all of those issues at once or should we do them sequentially? Uh, focusing first upon the nuclear issue. What would your recommendation be in terms of how we look at that negotiation challenge? Well, I really think it would be a mistake to overload the agenda. As you mentioned, there are human rights. What are you going to do about Japanese abductees? <clears throat> what are you going to do about refugees? What are you going to do about biochem weapons? What are you going to do about conventional weapons? I mean, that really overloads the agenda. And initially, security guarantee also means you're not going to interfere in domestic happenings, domestic politics. So you have to give that assurance. So I can understand, it will be criticized heavily by many of you, why we should concentrate on denuclearization above all else. Thank you. Dr. Cha. <coughs> um, I, I do think that these are clearly the most important threats. I mean, our objective always is how is this negotiation going to make us more secure, not less secure? And in that sense, long-range ballistic missiles, the nuclear warheads are the key. Having said that, you know, for 30 years, we've done the negotiation this way, and it, it hasn't gotten us very far. Um, and so... I feel like while those are the key pieces, they need to be embedded in a broader political discussion that encompasses a wide variety of issues um, that can also serve to help us to get a better sense of whether the North Koreans are serious or not. So actual steps on human rights, treating their people better, would actually be a very important indicator of whether this re regime is, not go is going to change the way it does things, both at home and abroad. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
Thank you. Senator Risch. Let me say, uh, uh, first of all, Senator Markey, I, I really agreed with a lot of the things that you said in your opening statement, but there are a few things that I did disagree with. One is that there is no military solution here. Uh, and you said that he believed he was negotiating from a position of strength. If he believes, if he truly believes that there is no military solution he, uh, here, then he is indeed uh, negotiating from a position of strength. But the military, the choice for a military solution is not ours. It is his. He was told by the international community, by the president, what the red line was and what he could not do. And if he crossed that red line, there was going to be a military solution, not of our choosing. So the, the, the cards are in his hands in, in that regard. Um, so uh, I, I want to talk a little bit. There's a lot of overthinking going on on this. There are two things that are needed to get where we want to be. And just I want to touch on what uh, you said, uh, Mr. Yoon, about overloading. The question that Senator Markey had was an excellent question about what do we resolve here? Uh, you, you have at one end of the spectrum the human rights problems that they have internally. You have at the other end of the spectrum uh, the nuclear issue. Um, look, we're all about human rights. We always have been. We always will be. That's going to be us. But if you, if, if you try to overload this and try to resolve all these things at once, I think, I think you're just setting the thing up for failure. I think two things are needed to resolve the, 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 the current issue, and that is you need the two leaders when they sit down to reach an, uh, an agreement on an objective. That is, they, they have, both have an understanding of what the objective is. And when after that happens, they both need to pledge that they will work in good faith to reach that objective. Both of those were missing with the Iran deal. Uh, we didn't have the same objective. Our objective was that they never have a nuclear weapon. Their objective was, well, yes, but not right now. And they had their fingers crossed behind their back as, they were, as, uh, as we were going down the pike. And the second thing that was missing with the Iranians was good faith. They were not working in good faith to see that they never had a nuclear weapon. Indeed, they were working just the opposite to have things put in place so that they could eventually get to a nuclear weapon. So those two things were missing. Get to those two things, an objective and then a good faith pledge on both sides. If you do that, this thing can be solved. It really can be. Um, the, the accounting, uh, obviously, is, is important, and I think, Mr. Chai, you, you had mentioned that they have resisted this in the past. Well, you're absolutely right. They have, they have strongly resisted this in the past. But remember, they have also resisted in the past the idea of a denuclearized Korean peninsula. So now, obviously, the, the definitions need to be honed. But in the past, if you'd have said to them, would you agree to a denuclearized Korean peninsula? They, just, they did not agree to that under any terms. So something has changed here. And, the, and there is no, no question that what has changed is the tone uh, of uh, how things were from January and February uh, to where they are today. There has been a change uh, in uh, the tone between, actually, between uh, both countries. I think our position has to be that we're going into this clear-eyed. They know that we know that, that there is suspicion uh, and skepticism on our part because of the history of this thing. The history's been just awful. Uh, we've been taken to the cleaners, uh, not just once on this, where we started giving stuff 
And then at the end of the day, they pulled the carpet out from under us. That is not going to happen again. This president has said clearly that this is not going to happen again. And we have a different situation with President Trump than we've had in the past. I think, uh, uh, I, I think uh, uh, Kim Jong-un recognizes that he's dealing with a person who has a very strong personality and is not going to tolerate the kinds of things that have gone on in the past. I think he recognizes that clearly. He knows uh, that this president is dedicated, deeply, deeply dedicated to the security of the United States and to our allies in the region. So I, I think there, there have been things that have changed. Am I willing to sit here and say, oh, it's different this time? No, I'm not willing to sit here and say that. But there are things that are happening and there are positive things that are happening, as both of you uh, have suggested, and we need to recognize that. This is so important. This is so important to us and to the world that if indeed there is a change happening, we need to let these two people get together in a room, two people who have strong personalities, try to hammer this thing out and see if they can come to some kind of agreement. Uh, it is so important that uh, that they recognize that even though we've had a bad path, a bad history, and they've done they've done things that were very bad negotiations in the past. If indeed, if indeed, they are going to go down the road that they are suggesting that they want to go down the road, they need to know that we are a willing partner and will be a cooperative partner to get to the point that they have suggested that they want to get to. I think if we do that. I think that uh, I, I think that we can be successful, and and I appreciate your work on this, everyone's work on this. I hope that the our our uh, national media, I hope that other national media around the world, international media around the world, will give these two leaders a chance and not expect them to come out of there with an an all inclusive uh, solution that is immediate. This is going to take some time, but if they can reach an objective. And if, if they can reach a, a, a situation where they both agree that they will work in good faith to meet that objective, this can be done. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank, thank you, you, Senator Risch. This is a very timely hearing. Uh, thank you for the hearing. Yeah, thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, Senator Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, first, thanks for holding this hearing. It's very important. We're one week out from the summit, and this is the best presentation I've heard in regards to developing a strategy on what we want to achieve through negotiations. Mr. Chairman, I'm wondering how much discussion has taken place in the White House in order to prepare for this summit that's just one week away. I say that recognizing there has been virtually no communication with Congress as to the preparations for this summit. I know individual Republicans might have had conversations. I'm not aware of any Democrats and I'm not aware of any conversations with this committee, uh, which holds the key role here. And uh, as, uh, as Dr. Chow said, uh, Congress needs to be involved in this for two reasons. One, we need unity in America. And secondly, we might have to act because our sanction regime is mandatory. And ultimately, there's going to be a need for congressional action in order, if there are su successful agreements, for Congress to help implement those agreements. So let me make it clear. I, I agree with Senator Markey. I'm very much in favor of a diplomatic solution here. I'm very pleased to see that we're moving forward with diplomacy. I think that is the best way to move forward. So I'm, I'm pleased about that. But I'm also realistic as to what we need to achieve. 
And, and I thought you laid out, both of you laid out, that you need to have a declaration. There needs to be a commitment by North Korea to an objective. Then you need to know what the current status is. You need to get a, a commitment to start a, make sure there's a freeze, and that requires inspections, and to make sure that the declaration's accurate. And then you need a strategy to dismantle, uh, and obviously that will take time. And yes, there'll be trade-offs as you go through the process. That's what you need to achieve. So I sort of want to focus on Kim Jong-un for one moment and ask one critical question. Do you believe today he is committed to the end of the nuclear program in North Korea? <laughs> Um, so, um, I'm, I'm quite skeptical that he is. And let me just give one reason why. We, um, we've done some work where we've looked up old archived satellite imagery of the North Korean nuclear site at Yongbyon. And it turns out that they started landscaping that site in 1962, two years before China detonated their first nuclear device. December of last year, they said they had completed their program. Um, so that is over 50 years they've been working on this thing. And the notion that they're ready to show up in Singapore and all of a sudden say, here, it's all yours now. Um, uh, you know, we're ready to denuclearize. I'm just very skeptical of that. Now, I don't disagree with Joe in the sense that this is, this is why you have a summit meeting. This is what negotiation is for. Um, but we walked in with the very same uh, premise in 1994 and in 2005. Obviously, there's a big difference because the leaders are meeting, and that will be important to know ultimately whether they are interested in this. But right now, I'm still skeptical. Uh, thank you. Again, we don't know, and I would say this is a hypothesis worth testing. I think what is unusual about this summit meeting is that these are truly leaders-led. You know, we talk about the term leaders-led. And you see both on President Trump's side in Washington, Kim Jong-un's side in, 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 uh, in Pyongyang, resistance among staff. And leaders are much more eager to get there than staff uh, or, you know, those under him. And so, I mean, this is, uh, I mean, I do agree with uh, Senator Rich. We, you know, let them have a go. I mean, we have, we can say it's failed many times in the past, but we've never had a leaders meeting on this issue. And, and that's why I support this. I, I, yeah. I agree with what you're saying. And I, I think both of your answers are accurate. Uh, today, we can't believe that Kim Jong-un actually will turn over all of his nuclear weapons. We can hopefully through the leaders start a path that can lead to that. And that's why the negotiations are particularly sensitive to make sure that we don't give away too much too early and that we achieve an, a, a plateau that can lead to the next plateau. Uh, and, and that's where I think we're having challenges here as to whether the leaders, in fact, will leave us in that position. You laid out, I think, pretty specifically what we need to do. Kim Jong-un, what is his objective in the summit? What, what do you think he's going to try to achieve in the summit? I believe he wants the summit to see the seriousness 
on the U.S. side. And I do believe the phrase, you know, getting to know you that President Trump used is probably exact wording from what the North Koreans want to do. Uh, and, and someone added a plus because it sounded too little getting to know you. Uh, so I think this is what Kim Jong-un wants. He is the one who has gotten so far. I mean, you know, I mean, let's remember he has come out onto a major foreign policy stage. So and so he, I think he wants to start slow. How far do you think he will go on June 12th? I believe he will go to have what we call declaration that he's, he will eventually denuclearize completely, fully, whatever words you want, provided they are no longer need uh, nuclear weapons for deterrence. I think, and does he's willing, they've been willing to go. Is it new? No. And what does he want to get from the United States? He wants security guarantees for regime survival. Um, <clears throat> I think he's going to want to give as little as he can and get as much as he can in Singapore. Um, there is, uh, I do think that he will stick to the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula mantra that the, all of his high-level emissaries have used thus far. And, um, and I think, you know, every foreign policy has a domestic audience. I mean, he has a domestic audience here. He, they have announced that the, this engagement with the United States is now a part of their national narrative. But I don't think it's one based on weakness or a desire to get economic assistance. It's based on strength. They are a nuclear weapons state now. That's why the United States wants to talk to them. That's why Donald Trump is ready to meet with them. So they have a domestic narrative based on strength. And to, to think that they're going to give up that corpus of strength at this meeting would completely contradict the domestic narrative. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Cardin. Votes have started, so Senator Markey is uh, going to vote. Come back, and then I'll go vote. Uh, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to our witnesses for your help and for your service. And in particular, Ambassador Yoon, I want to just say to you, thank you for your work on behalf of Otto Warmbier and his family. What a tragic situation, but he was a University of Virginia student and close friends of mine, the Hillel minister at UVA was very close to Otto and his family, and the work that you did was compassionate, very, very difficult situation was tragic, and obviously we learned some things from it. Um, here's what I want to get into with you guys. Uh, I have some disagreements with Senator Risch about the Iran deal, and we've hashed them out earlier here in this room, and we don't need to, but there was one part of the Iran deal we completely agreed with. In fact, every senator did, and it was that President Obama shouldn't be able to do it without Congress. So we wrote up an Iran Nuclear Review Act. Senators Corker and, and Cardin were the sponsors of that with, with other co-sponsors. And we didn't set preconditions for the negotiation, but we basically required President Obama to bring it back to Congress. And the basic structure of it was, if you do a deal that touches upon congressional prerogatives, like the congressional sanctions regime, you have to bring it back to Congress and we will defer to you as an Article II executive with diplomatic prerogatives, but you have to bring it to Congress, and Congress has a period of time under which to review it and disapprove of it. But if Congress doesn't disapprove of it, it can go forward. That received a 98 to 1 vote in the Senate. And the only senator who voted no was Senator Cotton, 
who actually also believed President Obama couldn't do it without Congress. He wanted a different set of standards about what congressional review should be. So my opening question to you is, given that that was the will of this body with respect to President Obama and an Iranian nuclear deal, shouldn't we apply the same principle to this deal and suggest that any deal that the president does that touches upon any congressional prerogative, like a congressional sanctions regime or might commit Congress to a treaty or something down the road, shouldn't we have a uniform standard that the deal should be subject to some congressional review before it can be considered fait accompli and done? Um, so I think, Senator, that that is, I would agree with you. I think that's very important, especially given that Everything we've seen thus far has been thus far in terms of getting to Singapore has been very, very closed, um, um, not subject to any, not even interagency review, let alone congressional review. So I think that um, that bar has to be put out there because you want to be able to publicly defend the policy or the deal that you're going to make. You know. Ambassador Yoon, I would completely agree with you, Senator Kane. I think. Uh, one weakness of some of these agreements uh, that we've entered is that it doesn't have full buy-in from, from Congress. And uh, obviously, any deal on North Korea will have to lead to a peace treaty. And that's something that should be, you know, of course, the domain of uh, Congress is a treaty. So setting aside for a minute what the requirements should be for a congressional review, let me dig into it further. If a congressional review means that the administration has to sell the deal to Congress, and by doing that, it's also selling it to the American public, and that's a lot better than kind of a secretive deal that doesn't get sold. Congressional review means that the president's and his negotiating team can look the North Koreans in the eye and say, you know, it's not enough for me to agree to this. I have to do something that I believe I can get the people's elected body to agree with. And that can actually be helpful to the administration in negotiating a deal. Um, so I would say in the interest of transparency, in the interest of the appropriate relationship between Article I and Article II branches, to protect the congressional prerogative vis-a-vis -vis congressionally imposed sanctions, I'm not that interested in setting preconditions. I'm like you, Ambassador Yoon. Whatever level of hope or expectation I have, I'm glad they're having the discussions. But I do not want there to be a deal done unilaterally by an Article II executive without a, a review process that is at least as significant as the review process that we unanimously agreed should be imposed with respect to the Iranian deal. And again, would you generally share that sentiment? I would generally share that sentiment, and I would pick up particularly on the point that you made about um, uh, that, I mean, obviously for transparency ratification purposes, but also for actual bargaining leverage. I mean, if we can go and say to the North Koreans, we can't do this because we know that the Congress, the American people, will not accept that, that gives you additional leverage in negotiation. Uh, I agree with that, uh, Senator. And, and one thing I would add is that to me, there has been lack of congressional involvement in almost anything we do with North Korea. And, and I felt that when I was in the administration. I feel it now. 
there is, you know, practically nobody goes to North yeah. Korea. When's the last time even a staff there went to North mm -hmm. Korea? And uh, I now have a different hat in U.S. Institute of Peace. As you know, it's very bipartisan. Certainly one of the things I would like to try to do is more of relationship and dialogue between our congressional folks and say the work Korean Workers Party in Pyongyang, you know, something like that. Well, I think that's I, I, I really appreciate this discussion and I, I'm gonna work with my Republican colleagues because I hope that they will insist the same with respect to President Trump and a North Korean negotiation as they insisted with respect to President Obama and an Iranian negotiation, that it should not happen unless and until there's a meaningful process for congressional review. Last question I want to ask is this. Here is my concern about the negotiation. I think we have all kinds of concerns about do we, does each side describe denuclearization the same way? I am concerned about a negotiation where the U.S. gets a short-term win on the peninsula at the, at the cost of ceding broader American involvement in the region to the detriment of allies like Japan, South Korea, and others. I would not want to do a deal that would ultimately, for example, be celebrated in China as the U.S. backing away from the region, uh, even though it might be positive on the Korean Peninsula. I, am I right to worry about that? Sure, I think so, Senator. I mean, when we used to do the negotiations, we tried to keep in mind that we can't let our North Korea policy get ahead of our alliance policy, and that our, whatever deal we make has to make the U.S. stronger in Asia, not weaker. And so I do. I mean, it was part of the, the, the orientation of my initial statement. I worry that we might want to deal too badly and then put things on the table that hurt us in the long term. I would agree with you. We really don't want to do anything that would degrade the alliance. However, having said that, our military is involved in wide range of exercises, wide range of role there. Some of them deeply worrisome for North Korea because whenever there is an exercise, they have to get ready, they have to spend the limited amount of fuel that they have and so on. So in the past, we have had a discussion and again, it's up to us to imagine what is on the table in terms of those negotiations is what is not. For example, we will of course say no reduction in troops, uh, for example, but is it okay to reduce some elements of some joint exercise? So we, we, we shouldn't really throw everything in and say don't touch anything to do with X, but again, examine the outcome carefully. Thank you, Senator Kane. Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Could I talk to you a little bit about the fired military leaders? There's been uh, media reports indicating that uh, Kim Jong-un replaced three of North Korea's top military officials. Uh, the action comes only days before the summit between the United States and North Korea in Singapore. Uh, some analysts suggest it might be a sign that the North Korean leaders worried uh, about opposition from his military leaders regarding the nuclear talks. Uh, other analysts suggest it might be part of a broader effort to exert control and usher in a younger generation of leaders. There's a story in today's um, Financial Times, uh, North Korea military reshuffle raises hope of nuclear deal. Kim's sacking of old guard viewed as effort to keep one million strong army in check. So kind of looking at what's out there and the, this new news uh, related to the upcoming summit, how significant do you believe this firing is of these uh, leaders? And do you believe that the removal of the top military officials is a result of maybe even growing opposition from leaders to the summit? 
Um, so, uh, Senator, you know, we're always guessing when we look at internal palace politics in North Korea. Um, um, there has been, under Kim Jong-un, during his six or seven years in office, a steady stream of purging that has been taking place at very high levels. One of the positions that you mentioned, I think, was the Army Chief of Staff, and we've seen that, quite a bit of purging in that position for quite some time, very key position within, within the military. I think um, it's entirely possible that uh, the FT hypothesis that this might be to take out hardliners as they prepare for this meeting, it's certainly possible, and if so, that would be a good sign. Um, <clears throat> but I think what it really points to is that um, this is obviously a big step for the United States, but it's a huge step for North Korea. I mean, this is a small, isolated country that is now agreeing to step on the world stage, as Joe said, in Singapore, where the entire world will be watching, uncertain of what the outcome of that meeting will be. So there are huge stakes, huge gambles, so we, I would not be surprised if there is some resistance inside the system to what Kim Jong-un is doing. Uh, anything you'd like to add to that? Uh, I, I think Victor is completely right. We don't know. But one thing I think it does certainly signal is that Kim Jong-un is feeling increasingly confident that he can uh, displace these folks who've been there for a long time. So he is bringing people who are closer to his age and maybe his outlook. So I think, again, this points to signs that Kim Jong-un is feeling confident as he prepares for Singapore. Thank you. Okay. The, um, in terms of sanctions relief, I wanted to visit with you next about that. The United States has put in place significant economic sanctions against North Korea. Uh, our nation has relied, uh, has re really rallied the international community to join in imposing serious sanctions and pressuring North Korea to denuclearize. Uh, the North Korean regime is feeling the impacts of the maximum pressure campaign. Uh, during the, uh, the Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore on Sunday, Secretary Mattis stated, North Korea will receive relief only when it demonstrates verifiable and irreversible steps to denuclearization. So it's clear that the Trump administration has learned from the mistakes of the previous administration and is trying to ensure that we don't give away money and sanction relief up front without achieving a permanent solution. Could you talk about what specific actions you believe demonstrate verifiable and irreversible steps on denuclearization? Um, so the first thing I would say, Senator, and I want to say for the record is that um, for a very long period of time, everybody said sanctions don't work and that they don't work on North Korea. Um, I just want to say for the record, sanctions work. <laughs> and we usually don't know that until they actually come to the table as they have this time. And then we don't even talk about whether the sanctions worked or not. They were clearly, as you said in your statement, one of the main reasons why North Korea is at the table, because the sanctions are working. Um, uh, um, in terms of the steps that would be needed, that, that would be required for any sort of consideration of relaxation, you know, I, again, very clearly, I think the, the first and most important step is a complete and full declaration of all of their weapons, precursors, facilities, and expertise that would then be fully verified by an international body, IAEA, whatever it might be. Um, that is the first and most important step um, that would signify something different from what we've seen in the, in the past failed agreements. Um, and then we would actually have to see inspectors going in and start the process of securing 
disabling uh, these capabilities. Um, th those would be tangible steps that then could take us down a path of, of removing some of these sanctions. Uh, I would agree completely with that definition, sir. Thank you. And then uh, in terms of um, previous efforts, uh, North Korea poses a serious national security threat. The, the world would be a safer place with North Korea no longer having nuclear weapons. The United States is previously engaged in four major sets of formal nuclear and missile negotiations with North Korea over the years. Uh, it's important that we learn from previous mistakes. So President Trump has been very clear that he will walk away if he's unable to get a good deal with North Korea. Can you talk about what lessons we might have learned in previous negotiations that we should be thinking about going into these discussions next week? Uh, so I would say the key lesson we learned was really do specify everything on the on, on, on the paper. I mean, for example, the last uh, last negotiations, what's what we call leap day agreement, and that failed because of satellite launch. If you want to include satellite launch, it must say so on the paper. This is why the follow-up work, staff work, or lower-level negotiations, I believe, are very important. Thank you. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think one of the most important lessons, and is particularly appropriate for what's going to happen next week, is to really understand the history of the negotiations. Because unlike us, the North Koreans have the same people doing these negotiations for the past three decades. Um, all the people involved in the current engagement are all people that Joe and I know well, because they were the people who were doing it, in my case, during the Bush administration 10 years ago or even before that. Um, and what we don't want to do is walk into a situation where the North Koreans put things on the table that they've put on the table before, and we walk away thinking those are new, new things. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, I thank the uh, senator from Wyoming. Now, um, there, there are two roll calls which um, have been called on the floor of the Senate, which is why uh, senators are um, arriving and departing so that they uh, can ensure that they're voted on both of the matters. Um, so we're going to continue the hearing and await uh, other uh, senators returning to the hearing. So my um, next question is this. If North Korea backslides, uh, would you support additional sanctions as a way to stave off uh, a military confrontation on the peninsula? Uh, in other words, using uh, intensified uh, economic uh, sanctions uh, rather than moving to a military option. Uh, again, I think uh, it's, it's been clear that sanctions have worked and they've worked well. And so if North Korea backslides, I would highly recommend we both do the multilateral sanction through UN Security Council as well as uh, what I would call bilateral sanctions or unilateral sanctions with our allies, such as South Korea, Japan, Australia, EU, and so on. So I, I think uh, the critical question, of course, sanctions is how much do we have China with us? And so it is very important, the, the UN sanctions, because China will only work with us uh, in New York. Uh, those will be very important negotiations. So. Okay, so Dr. Cha, that's the, that's the big question. Um, there are reports that China 
itself is already backsliding on the sanctions that have been imposed. Uh, and yet we know that while the President says that there have already been maximum sanctions, uh, we know that that's not the case uh, because China has not cut off the crude oil uh, which flows into North Korea, which is essential for the North Korean economy. So cutting off the uh, crude oil flow into North Korea would essentially be maximum plus. Um, so do you think that there's a likelihood that China would in fact cooperate with us if North Korea uh, is not cooperating in terms of their willingness to impose additional sanctions on the North Korean regime? You know, it's a very good question, Senator. And the thing that concerns me right now is that um, the even if we assume if we assume a good faith negotiation in which North Korea makes clear that it is unwilling to part with all of its capabilities, and we go to sanctions, um, the the Chinese situation is different now because in the past they were they were in a period of six or seven years of political alienation <clears throat> with the North Korean regime and as we've seen in, they've had two summits within 40 days and there clearly has been a change in the Chinese position on North Korea after the party congress to one that's much more focused on engagement so my, the point of all this is to say that even if we do make a good faith effort at negotiation and the North Koreans balk and we, when we, we go back to sanctions, it will be, this will take a particular type of strategy or approach by the President and by the Administration, by the Congress, to China to convince them to go back to sanctions because they have equities now in the North Korea relationship that they did not have in the last quarter of 2017 or the beginning of 2018 when we were pursuing maximum pressure. And again, laying out what those equities are that China now has in 2018 that they did not have in 2017 in North Korea, what are those equities? So I think they found themselves in, in at 2017 as they were approaching their own party congress to be in probably the worst position China has ever been on the Korean Peninsula which was to have bad relations simultaneously with both North and South Korea. North Korea over the missile testing, the nuclear test, South Korea over the THAAD deployment. Um, and so I think they've shifted to a, an all-out engagement strategy with both Koreas now um, that is meant to sort of to balance the U.S. influence on the peninsula. And so when we start talking about, when the President starts talking about peace treaty, these other sorts of things, those weigh directly on Chinese equities, and I think that's part of the reason they have pushed for new relationship with both Koreas. Okay. So if in this negotiation um, uh, the North Korean officials ask uh, President Trump, ask American negotiators to be taken off the specially designated nationals or SDN lists, which are targeted sanctions for human rights related issues, uh, not for proliferation, um, how do you think the United States should respond to that request at this time? So this also goes back to the question from the Senator Barroso about lessons we've learned from the past. And I feel like one of the lessons, and we, I, I would admit that we didn't hold true to these lessons. One of the lessons is I think we need to only give up sanctions directly related to concrete action on those things upon which the sanctions were imposed. So taking individuals off the F SDN list when there are actually no improvements in human rights um, situation in the country, to me, don't make sense. And we start getting into trouble when we start putting things on the table 
and being willing to relax those for political or negotiation reasons, not for the actual purpose of the sanctions. It hurts us in the long term and it hurts um, our equities in the region and with our allies. Okay, let me come back to you, uh, Mr. Young. Um, satellite imagery suggests that a reactor at the Yongbyon rea uh, reactor uh, nuclear complex was operating this past month indicating possible plutonium reprocessing. If North Korea is, in fact, reprocessing re, uh, plutonium, what do you think we can infer about North Korea's intentions? Would that activity be consistent with statements from a country that says that it intends to denuclearize? It would be very disturbing signal for them to do another round of reprocessing now and, and, and that is why we need verification regime, a strong verification regime to be in place as we reach commitments. So I think, uh, again, we need accounting, declaration, verification. So all these, but however, I would agree with you, or I would also assess that this is not a good sign for them to be reprocessing right now. Um. And ultimately, do you both believe that it has to be the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is the verification uh, mechanism that we use to ensure that there is compliance? I think that is the best uh, and also most acceptable. Uh, and, you know, as you know, the teams are made up of many nationals. And I know that IAEA, as we speak, is already preparing for, uh, as a team, already training. Great, beautiful. Uh, Senator Risch. Uh, thank you very much. I, I want to respond to a couple of things here. Senator uh, Cardin was concerned about what's not happening in the White House. And um, I, I can understand uh, perhaps his concern that's not getting a lot of publicity. But look, uh, I want to assure Senator Cardin, I've been there. I've talked with the people that are working on this. This is a very professional national security team that's working on this. This is made up of not just individuals from the Trump administration. People on this national security team, and particularly those dealing on the North Korea issue, are people who've been there through various administrations. I believe the president is getting excellent advice from that national security team so that no one thinks that the president's sitting in the Oval Office uh, reading a magazine and thinking about this thing, he is getting very deep and detailed uh, briefings on this, and uh, I, I feel very comfortable about where they're headed. As far as Senator Kane is concerned about Congress's role here, um, look, I believe, just as I did with the Iranian deal, that this is something that the Founding Fathers actually thought about. And they said the first branch of government has a role, the second branch of government has a role. And the second branch, after they negotiate, uh, needs to submit it to the United States Senate for a two-thirds vote as a treaty. I can tell you personally that the President of the United States has told me personally, the Vice President of the United States has told me personally, the Secretary of State has told me personally that it is their intent to craft this in such a way that it is a treaty and will be submitted under the Constitution of the United States as a treaty to the United States uh, Senate for verification. So they are viewing it in that regard. And in that regard, they also understand that the way this is done is with not just the consent, 
but the advice and consent. And uh, there is a lot of advice that they're getting right now, a lot of it publicly uh, and some of it privately, uh, but they take that very seriously and uh, they know that uh, the, the Constitution requires them to not only get consent, but to get advice. And uh, we, a lot of us felt uh, uh, very abused during the Iran deal that that advice just was not landing uh, with, uh, with anything uh, uh, that it needed to land with. So in that regard, uh, I, I think that, uh, that this, these are, we have a good structure in place as to, as to how this is going to be handled and where we're going to go. Uh, and lastly, let me say that uh, I know people have said, well, how do we know if they're acting in good faith? Look, those of us that are in this business, you, you can't sit down and write a definition. This is good faith. But you can, you can read between the lines, and you know it when you see it. And when we had the Iran deal and uh, they were making offers about how the inspections were going to take place, look, if you're acting in good faith, an inspection's an inspection. Anytime, any place, you open the door and you, and you go in and inspect. If you remember on the Iran deal, they had this one particular facility we were really interested in and said, well, when you want to inspect it, you give us plenty of advance notice, then you come to the gates, we will take pictures, we'll bring the pictures back out to you and you can look at them. Does that sound like good faith? You don't have to be a, uh, a rocket scientist to figure out that that is not good faith. So I think we're going to know good faith really uh, quickly when we see it. And I go back to my premise. If they can reach, and the two leaders can reach an agreement on a specific objective and both pledge to work at it in good faith and both do, this can get done. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Risch. And I'll ask one quick question. Um, the, the opportunity I had uh, earlier this week to meet with the foreign minister of Japan uh, was uh, incredibly telling. We talked about uh, the concerns regarding abductees, concerns regarding short-range, intermediate-range missiles, uh, and of course uh, Japan's, uh, the, the relationship that we have with Japan, uh, the opportunity to engage South Korea, Japan, the United States in regional economic and security a conversation is incredibly important. So, uh, could you could you uh, give me uh, a, a synopsis, a brief synopsis of uh, equities that Japan has at stake and how we can look out for them maintaining that important regional security uh, partnership, uh, Dr. Cha? Um, so, I think for um, Japan has always uh, played some role in our negotiations and agreements with North Korea. During the agreed framework, they were one of the original Quito members, the Korea Energy Development Organization. During the six-party talks, they were one of the five countries that were um, providing as, uh, fuel assistance, interim fuel assistance to uh, North Korea. Um, and so they will be an important part of any future deal with North Korea. And, you know, uh, and it is very important for the United States in these negotiations um, to be aware of countries like Japan, our key ally Japan and their equities, whether it's, on, as you said, short range and intermediate range ballistic missiles, um, the issue of the abductees, the abductee citizens and sanctions. Uh, Japan has been one of the strongest supporter of the sanctions regime. <laughs> um, and even if we talk about peace treaty or peace agreement on the peninsula without with, with threats remaining to our ally, whether it's ballistic missile threats or even conventional threats, um, it's very important not to allow those, under, uh, those equities to be undercut because, again, 
we will not be making ourselves more secure uh, as a result of this agreement if we're undercutting our allies. Ambassador Yoon. Thank you. I don't think I can overemphasize, overemphasize the importance of Japan in our strategic considerations in Asia and Northeast Asia. Uh, we have 50,000 troops stationed in Japan and they represent what forward deployment is all about. And, uh, and, and, and as Victor mentioned, they have been solidly with us throughout, uh, whether it's in six-party talks or before. They have also in previous agreements like uh, agreed framework, agreed to pay a big share of the light water reactors that we, we had committed to. So in any agreement that we eventually reach with North Korea, Japan has to be a part of it. And so I think to me personally, it is very worrisome that there is not as much consultations with Tokyo as uh, there should be. And, and so again, I think this is a key part of what some of our closest allies are saying. You need to understand us a lot more. And so I would hope going forward, I know that Prime Minister of Japan is going to be in town in a few days, that these consultations at high level accomplish the kind of shortcomings we've had over the last few months. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Yoon. Uh, Senator Markey, do you have anything else? Yeah, or, I do. Uh, yeah, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, at the end of the day, do you believe that North Korea will want to retain a civilian nuclear power plant capacity? Uh, infrastructure in the country? Do you think that will be something that ultimately they insist upon uh, and as a result, obviously, uh, will necessitate an IAEA full-scope inspections uh, regime that is imposed upon it? I, I firmly believe they will insist on it, that this is a right that they believe is given to every country virtually to have a peaceful use of uh, nuclear energy. And, and I, I do believe that at the end of the day, that's something we should seriously consider. Thank you. Okay, great. Dr. Cha. I, I agree. They wanted it in the 1994 deal. They wanted it in the 2005 deal. They, of course, don't have the power grid to support light water reactors in the country, but, but they seem to want that rather than conventional electricity or other things that would do much more to increase energy efficiency in the country. Um, in, t in terms of where they see themselves positioned right now, um, how much of this, from your perspective, is related to North Korea's reaction to the imposition of sanctions on them and the extent to which they are now uh, biting uh, in, the, um, uh, in the economy of North Korea? And how much of it is related to their sense that uh, they've completed their ICBM. They've completed uh, their nuclear weapons development program sufficiently to provide them with the deterrent which they have uh, always been seeking. Uh, Senator, I, I, I think they're both factors, that imposition of sanctions which, are, which have been biting for, for some time now, and as well as, I mean, you know, it may seem ironical, as well as their re, uh, regained confidence as, uh, as, 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 as shown by their nuclear tests and ICBM tests. Two other factors that 
should be taken into consideration. It was the election in South Korea last year, the election of President Moon, uh, who is much more progressive and wanting the tradition of reconciling. And remember, it was him who brought the deal to the White House, not anyone in the administration. Second factor is China. Uh, China imposing sanctions throughout last year uh, to the extent that they did also really did hurt China. So I would say it's a combination of those and it's very hard to say at the moment which one was the overriding concern. And of course, the last thing we have to remember is that this is a 34-year-old leader and uh, he, is, he may be seeing the future in a different prism. Uh, may I just, I'll ask you, uh, uh, Dr. Cha, uh, I'm, I'm wondering uh, where you might perceive a difference between what South Korea wants to achieve in these discussions and what the United States wants to perceive. Where would that difference be in terms of what's acceptable to them and what would not be acceptable to us? Um, so I think the, the first and the overriding objective for South Korea is that they want peace on the Korean Peninsula. Um, they don't want a second Korean War. Um, I mean, this is clearly a threat to them as well as it is to us, but I think they believe that military solutions are not, are not the answer to this, pro uh, to this problem, particularly preventive, preventive military solutions. Um, <clears throat> uh, as Joe mentioned, this is a more progressive government and they are forward-leaning in terms of engagement with North Korea. I think that would make them more predisposed to moving more quickly on things like peace declarations or even a peace treaty, be more willing to move more quickly in terms of enlarging the humanitarian carve-out under the sanctions regime or even moving towards lifting some of those sanctions, perhaps for political reasons rather than for the direct technical reasons that we, we have already talked about in this hearing. I think overall they're still pretty much in line with the U.S., but I, my guess is that they would be more forward-leaning in terms of some of the incentives that could be provided to the North Koreans as a way to gain uh, more traction in, in, in the negotiations going forward. Do you agree with that? Yes, I agree with that. I think the key difference that we will feel is that South Koreans will want to lift sanctions way earlier than, uh, than Washington. And our reaction to that should be? I think, again, hold off for a while. <laughs> do you agree with that, Dr. Cha? And I mean, if the North Koreans do things that were the remove the causes for the sanctions, then we can lift them, but not for other reasons. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Markey. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, thank you to the chair and the ranking member for having this hearing. Thank you for sticking with us for so long. Um, I'm going to hope that I'm not treading uh, ground that others have uh, covered, but I had two subjects uh, that I wanted to raise. Um, the, the first is about the aftermath of uh, talks that are perceived by some, if not all, to um, fail to meet expectations. It's interesting that I think everyone agrees it's probably going to be a bit of a muddle um, as to what comes out uh, of next week. But um, there have been reports that there are some very close to the president uh, who uh, feel much more strongly about um, a path that runs through military action than others. And you both spent time in and around the administration. Um, I want to ask Two questions. One is a legal question. I know you're not lawyers, but I'm sure you've thought about uh, this second question. The first is, um, do you worry 
that there are going to be those close to the president who are going to use a failure to meet expectations, either internal or external expectations, as um, an excuse to push um, early military intervention. Um, and B, in your experience, do you think that the executive has that ability uh, short of a congressional authorization? Um, John Bolton did write a piece before taking up this post in which he argued that uh, the executive does not have to come to Congress in order to take preemptive military action against uh, North Korea. Um, do you agree with uh, that analysis, or do you think that the president has to come to Congress prior to launching a strike? Um, so uh, on, the, on your first question, Senator, I, I don't know the answer to that. There, there may be some who try to use failed negotiations or the failed summit as a pretext for taking more coercive military measures. On your second question, I'm not a lawyer, but I know lots of lawyers. And um, particularly when we're talking about pre a preventive military strike, a preventive, not in, not in defense, not in retaliation, but a preventive military strike, uh, everyone I talked to said that, um, that, that you, need co you need Congress. You cannot do that on your own. Right. Mr. Yoon. Uh, Senator, I do worry about failure leading to military action. Uh, I, think, uh, I think that's clearly among the world of possibilities out there. And, uh, you know, I mean, we experienced, of course, you know, throughout uh, last year, really what I felt was fairly dangerous situation where military option was being talked about quite openly, including things like preventive, preemptive, bloody nose, whatever. And so we have always considered military action during over the past 60 years, uh, but we've always said it is not worth another war on the Korean Peninsula to get the, those weapons out or programs out. So I would hope, uh, again, the karma uh, cooler heads would prevail on that. Uh, I think it would be, for me, uh, much more reassuring, certainly, if uh, Congress were to assert uh, your role uh, and, uh, and, and have any military action uh, be authorized by the Congress. Thank you. Um, let me, I won't press you on the second question, but I'll press you on the first one. Um, your worry about failure being a pretext for, for military um, action. I know you've been pressed on this question uh, probably in a number of different ways about what constitutes failure, what does not. Um, but it's hard to game this out, but what, what would be a situation in which uh, there might be progress made that would be enough to continue deliberations, but for some it might not be enough? What would failure look like um, that would worry you that there would be calls or room for calls for military action? I think for me, a failure would be an abrupt end and no me more meetings mm -hmm. scheduled, no dialogue. Right. And a returning back to where we were last year, to me, that would be a failure. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> my second question um, is about... Uh, this question of U.S. presence in South Korea, and again, I know you've talked around this, but um, specifically, what, what are the potential 
options uh, that we or the South Koreans might end up presenting uh, to the North Koreans regarding the future disposition of U.S. forces and personnel in South Korea. Obviously, this is going to be one of the uh, demands. Many people believe that when he says denuclearization, Kim means um, the removal of all or a substantial amount of U.S. personnel. Um, what are the range of, of options in the short term and the long run that would be responsible for us to consider uh, with regard to our posture in uh, the peninsula um, if we get the kind of assurances we're hoping for on the nuclear program of North Korea? I really don't think our alliance relationship especially the disposition of U.S. troops in South Korea should be any topic of discussion or negotiations with North Korea. Do you, oh, um, so I would say, first of all, I think in general, it would be great if we could bring troops home. I mean, in general, that would be, if there was peace on the peninsula, we could bring troops home, that would be a great thing. The concern I have is that we put things like that on the table for vague promises of denuclearization sometime right. in the future. Now, um, the discussion of the disposition of U.S. forces, historically for the United States, we have decided these things on our own. The South Koreans would like us to consult more with them on this, but historically the United States, when Nixon pulled out the seventh ID, we did this all on, on our own. There is a plan negotiated between the United States and South Korea about movement of forces to Camp Humphrey. So there is a whole plan for this. Um, and what I worry is that this should not all be short-circuited by you know, the flashy uh, you know, uh, thing that is the North Korea negotiation. It should really be something discussed only between allies and not leveraged in a North Korea So I, I don't disagree. I guess I'm asking it in the context of what uh, Kim will need and what he will ask for. Is it realistic to believe that you are going to get the commitments you think are necessary without putting that question on the table? Um, I, I, so I think it's certainly, po it's certainly possible. possible. Um, I mean, I think he's, he may be more after our nuclear umbrella than he might be after the troops. Right. Uh, previous South Korean presidents have, who have talked to past North Korean leaders have said the North Koreans are not averse to having some sort of military presence on the Korean Peninsula as long as it wasn't directed at, at them. I don't know whether that's true or not, but, um, uh, but <laughs> we are the ones who've been talking about putting it on the table. Uh, the right. North Koreans have not, in all they've said thus far, have not been the ones demanding that it be on the table. Right. I would note that in both agreed framework and six-party talks and all previous agreement, there was never a hint of their demand that we would put troops on the table. So I don't see that occurring. And uh, I think Victor is right. This seems to be a discussion that is kind of going on in Washington without necessarily going on in Pyongyang. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you. And we're never going to let you go. Senator Risch. Briefly. Um, you know, the question was asked about whether you're worried that uh, failure might lead to military action. And, and of course, that's always a concern. But I have to say that uh, watching this as I have and being as close to it as I have over this period of time, I'm much less concerned about that than I was last year and early this year. I mean, the road we were headed down was almost a certainty of military action. And so, you know, my concern to failure might put us back there. 
very possibly a failure would put us back there. But at least we are where we are today and have had made very, very significant progress, as I said, with a change in tone and everything else, although we're still clear-eyed about how this, uh, this could end. And that brings me to my last point, and that is that I think, uh, you know, the, the question was asked, which, which played a bigger role here, uh, the sanctions regime or the, the insecurity that Kim Jong-un felt? And I think it's the latter. I, I think that he came to the conclusion that his regime was going to come to an end, one way or another, if he, if he continued down the road that he went down. Uh, the sanctions certainly are a concern. They certainly hurt uh, people there. They don't hurt Kim Jong-un or his family or the elites, but they do hurt the people there. Uh, but his, his uh, number one goal is not to have nuclear weapons. His number one goal is to have the security that his regime will stay uh, where it is. And I think that uh, that's been recognized. And, uh, and I think as we proceed with negotiations, uh, that's what we've got to do to, to, get a, uh, to, to get to a point that everybody can agree to. So anyway, with that, again, uh, both of you have been uh, uh, very helpful in, in thinking this through and getting out uh, for the national discussion the issues that are at play here and the importance of tamping down expectations that this is a, a one-shot one deal where they sit down, they come out, sing kumbaya and say this is all taken care of. It isn't. It's going to be complex. It's going to take time. And I think because of the importance of this, everyone needs to be patient uh, with it. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator. Senator Markey. Yeah, thank you. One quick question. I think at the end of the day, the question is going to be what kind of security guarantees can the United States give to Kim if he gives up his nuclear weapons program? Uh, and I would like you both, if you could, just to talk about what is the mechanism we would use to create that security guarantee, given what John Bolton said about Gaddafi, said about Libya, uh, the constant noting of what happened in Iraq by North Korean officials. Uh, what is, in your opinion, the format for a security guarantee that we could provide in conjunction with allies that would give him the confidence that he could give it up and not jeopardize his own life? Um, so, Senator Markey, in a book that I wrote a few years ago, I listed, I think, seven pages of security assurances that previous U.S. administrations have given to North Korea, the most recent of which was during the Bush administration that I worked for where we, where we said we would not attack North Korea with nuclear or conventional weapons. There are other things we could do in terms of peace treaty normalization, all of these other things, but to me, in the end, the biggest threat to the regime's security is from within itself. So when it talks about pursuing nuclear weapons and economic development, that is, that is the, the closed-loop circle they have to get themselves out of because as they pursue that economic development, and presumably opening to the outside world, that will be the biggest threat to the regime. And we can't guarantee that. So you don't think his greatest fear would be a U.S. or allied attempt, once he no longer has nuclear weapons, to then create that incitement internally to support it and then to lead to his demise. You don't think that that's really a concern, which uh, he has. It's all internal. It's not external in terms of what then the plot might be, as it was in Iraq and Libya? I think for paranoid leaders like the North Korean leader, that's always a concern. But I, but I, I don't think that would be what the US ROK plan would be. And I think in the end, 
The biggest threat would be the economic I, opening. I appreciate that. Mr. Yun. I, I mean, as a diplomat, I've always said, listen to what they want, you know? Uh, and, 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 and the phrase they use more often than any, anything else is, you have to remove hostile intent. And so you ask them, what does hostile intent mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, they would count when we don't have normal relations. So I think normal diplomatic relations is important. And that's, that's something that we should seriously think about. Second thing is, of course, there are, there are security assurances such as non-aggression pact that we could go into. And another thing is uh, no first strike. I mean, all these have been used before. But again, if you want to test what they will do, you have to walk the path that they, they put it on for you. Um, I just want to both, uh, thank both of you for your excellent testimony today and for your yeah. service to our country over many, many years. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. And uh, I think it's important at this time, too, to think about that, you know, the hostile intent question and look at it through the lens of something that uh, Harry Harris, Admiral Harris, said when he was at PACOM, which is now, uh, as of this week, Indo-Pacific Command, uh, as a reflection of our free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, Harry Harris, testifying before Congress, said, it is not our intention to bring Kim Jong-un to his knees, but to his senses. That is not a hostile intent. That is an opportunity for the United States uh, to help bring that peace on the peninsula. And I hope, as we all hope, that the Singapore summit uh, can be the first of a conversation that will lead, indeed, to that peaceful resolution. I, too, want to thank both of you for your service to this country, for your time and testimony today. Uh, thanks to all of you for attending today's hearing. Again, in October of 2015, uh, this room would have been mostly crickets uh, and uh, just a couple of us up here. So thank you all for being a part of this. Uh, the witnesses uh, providing us, again, with the testimony for the information of members, and I apologize to Senator Merkley for uh, not being able to get to him uh, before he left for the votes. The record will remain open until the close of business Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. This is your homework assignment. I kindly ask the witnesses to respond as promptly as possible, and your responses will be made part of the record. Uh, we are going to be uh, having a little conversation outside with media following this. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is now adjourned. <laughs>